Evening, everybody. Uh, so if you've been with us for much of the past few months, uh, you know we've been in a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. And you may or may not have noticed uh, last week we switched it up. So actually, the breakup of the scriptures, this passage would have come last week, but we thought we would switch it to this week since it talks about communion and our communion is on the third Sunday. Uh, so we did uh, 1 Corinthians 12 last week and we're going backwards now to look at this passage. Uh, and it comes in a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul is in some ways addressing a lot of single issues. It's sort of a grab bag of different things that they've asked him about and inquired about. <clears throat> so they do in some ways stand alone uh, as different passages that he's talking about. Um, so let's turn to the uh, scripture. It's on page four of your bulletin if you want to follow along. Uh, this is the word of God from <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, <clears throat> eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. So it's interesting, if you've been following along over <clears throat> the past uh, couple months, uh, there's a number of different things that Paul talks about uh, when he's addressing these questions that have come up with the Corinthian church. And sometimes he will say things like, well, you're doing well in this, uh, but you need a little correction here and so on. Um, this one uh, starts out pretty different. He says, um, he says basically, I, I do not commend you. Uh, you come together, it's for worse, not for better. That's pretty strong language for Paul. You know, usually he's trying to at least soften the blow in a lot of the stuff that he's writing. But here he's just like, this is bad. Uh, it's a pretty sharp rebuke. And I think that it really does um, remind us of the importance of the topic when he's talking about what we call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, uh, uh, what we have, the elements here in front of us. He's saying this is a serious deal. This is an important thing. 
so uh, you're really messing up and it really matters. It's, it's really important. Uh, so we really need to listen up and make sure that we don't have that same sharp rebuke uh, directed at, at us as well. So just to give you a little bit of context, some of this may seem a little bit strange uh, in our modern context. <clears throat> um, for the first couple hundred years of the church, <clears throat> maybe up through the year 200 or so, uh, the communion supper generally took place in the context of what was called a love feast. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of food. <clears throat> and so it's actually, I remember reading a document uh, called The Tradition of the Apostles uh, from the second century. And it gave a liturgy for all of the different elements of the potluck. So there was like, a, you know, is, here is the prayer for the cheese. Uh, and here is the prayer for the olives. Uh, and uh, here is the prayer for the olive oil. Uh, and so on, and then it would conclude with uh, the liturgy for the Lord's Supper with the bread and the wine, but it was in the context of a, what we would today call a potluck. Uh, and so the, what the practice of the church was, and you hear echoes of this in Acts chapter two, where it says everybody had everything in common, they would come together with a potluck, they would set out all the food they had brought, they would have an actual feast, and then uh, they would end with communion, and it would be uh, this uh, celebration of the Lord's Supper that way. So it was a, like a real meal. And you already see uh, one of the problems that came about sort of being hinted at in this passage here, which uh, if you think about it, like if you're in the Roman Empire and you know maybe 5% of the population is reasonably well off and a very large fraction of the population is what we might call serfs or slaves, uh, abject poverty, uh, pretty much the rule for a, a large fraction, and you have your church, you set it aside, free food, uh, potluck tonight, uh, you're going to get a lot of people coming to get that free food. Uh, and so they oftentimes had people coming in, uh, and it became a free-for-all in a lot of cases. The people were fighting over food, uh, and uh, I've actually been in contexts where uh, overseas, I was in a culture that didn't particularly have a tradition of potlucks, and there was like not enough food at the end. Uh, and people were getting really grumpy at each other for the first people in line taking all the food and there was kind of like a little anger below the surface and so on. Uh, the kind of potlucks that we typically do, if you think about it, presumes that lots of people are sharing food uh, and also people are somewhat restrained in the amount that they take and they aren't like filling their plates and so on. So uh, it actually fell into disrepute in the church and one of the things that they did first was to make it a closed uh, service so that you had to be invitation only uh, and you couldn't come if you were just a visitor. And so then they got the reputation of having like some kind of secret thing going on <clears throat> and they were accused of having orgies. Uh, you know, what are they doing in secret behind this uh, you know, closed doors? It must be some kind of crazy thing that they're doing in there. Uh, and of course they were just sharing food but they got this bad reputation. And I would say it really wasn't in line with the words of Christ, to whatever you do, do it before the world. You know, that we're not supposed to be a secret society. Uh, we're supposed to do things before the world. So what the church eventually evolved toward uh, by the third century was to separate the feasting from the Lord's Supper and to have the Lord's Supper be a separate thing that was going on. Uh, they reduced uh, the amount of food that you got. Um, and really, through the last couple thousand years, it's gotten reduced a lot, right, down to like this little, this little thing. But I was actually in a Greek Orthodox church a few years ago, 
And they give you like a hunk of bread. It was like a, a serious piece of bread. Uh, and people were lining up uh, to get this bread that was coming from these very large baskets. Uh, so that was one of the things. And the other thing that uh, the Catholic Church did at one point was to only give out the wine to the priests and the ordained people and that the, uh, the non-ordained people only had the bread and not the wine. And it's funny, actually, there's um, yeah, an interesting story of when the Reformation came in Scotland, one of the things that was actually one of the most popular things about the Reformation was they said the wine will now be available to everybody and not just the priests. Uh, and so there are records of having communion and having like gallons and gallons of wine being consumed and people, you know, taking the cup and you know, like having like serious. And so they, they decided to have the practice of having communion just once a year uh, <laughs> uh, in order to limit again some of the abuses there. So actually, you know, in, there's one very practical application of what uh, Paul is talking about here, which really relates more to our potlucks than it does to our communion supper, which is to think of others as more important than yourselves. When you're at a potluck, don't rush forward and grab all the food for yourself uh, and, um, you know, bring enough food to share, you know, just sort of basic rules of a potluck uh, is part of what's going on here. Uh, and he's saying even, you know, don't come starving waiting to have other people's food very sort of practical stuff about having church potlucks, uh, which I think we can listen to. But the, the main thing he's dealing with here is uh, the communion supper, uh, the bread and the wine. And so I want to really zero in on that. <clears throat> um, most scholars would agree that in verse 23, when he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, and he goes on to a very famous passage, which you'll hear repeated every week in this church and many other churches. Uh, he's referring to something called the received teaching, uh, that there really was sort of an orthodoxy of uh, numerous things in the church even before some of these letters were written down. Uh, and one of them was the practice of communion uh, and what Jesus had said on the night uh, when he died on the cross or the night when he was betrayed and eventually led to the cross. Um, and Paul is really sort of taking a turn here uh, and saying, this is a big deal. Uh, I received something which you need to really listen up uh, and pay attention to. And he goes into some, some pretty strong statements here. He says, uh, if you take the, the, the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner, God might strike you dead. I mean, that's essentially what he says. And he says, actually, in some churches, that's happened. Uh, now, I don't know if that personally happened, but I would say uh, God reserves the right to do that even now. That's you know, not some kind of uh, uh, ancient thing, uh, but it really has to do with the nature of the communion. So the, the first point I want to really make about communion that I think is really coming across from Paul here uh, is the idea of holiness. Uh, we sometimes call it a sacrament, <clears throat> and the sacrament, the word sacrament just comes from the Latin word for holy, where we get our word sacred. So uh, another way to put it is it is a sacred thing. Uh, and we live in a society that doesn't have a very strong sense of holiness and sacredness. Uh, we tend to be a secular society <clears throat> in which nothing is holy. And so part of what <clears throat> Paul is getting at is saying that this is a big deal uh, and this is a sacred thing. And uh, so I'm going to spend just a little time talking about that idea of holiness. There's a book I would commend to you if you've never read R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. 
Uh, we have it, I believe, uh, on our book uh, stand there for sale. Uh, you can get it on Amazon and so on. Lots of people have said it was a life-changing book for them. It really, in many ways, helps you to understand the whole Old Testament <clears throat> uh, as well as the New in terms of understanding what's, you know, what's God doing uh, in a number of those uh, incidents and stories. <clears throat> uh, in, in a nutshell, you could call holiness <clears throat> otherworldliness, uh, that there is something uncanny or scary about God uh, and about the things of God. <clears throat> and um, as a result of that, when we draw near to God, uh, we have sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, we have the potential for greater spiritual blessing. So when you're in the presence of the holy, uh, sometimes I'll use the word magic, there is something greater blessing and magic there, but also the other side of that, in every incident that you see in the Bible, when people are drawing near to God, there is a greater threat. There's a threat that when you are as a sinful person coming into the presence of the holy uh, and doing something uh, that is disrespectful of the holy, that you could literally be struck dead. And there's a, some stories that bother people in the Old Testament. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and it's uh, being moved, and this guy reaches out and grabs it with his hand, uh, and he's struck dead instantly at that point. Uh, we also see God saying to Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. There is really implication that when you're in the presence of the holy, you act differently. <clears throat> and you act, in a sense, like you're dealing with dynamite. Uh, if you think about dynamite, uh, it is something that has a great use for good, right? We can make tunnels uh, out of it. We can, uh, you, you know, do move mountains and all kinds of things like that. But it's not something you just treat cavalierly, right? You have to sort of be careful around it uh, and treat it uh, carefully. Uh, and so, you know, to use a quote from Star Wars, what has great power for good has great power for evil, right? Um, and that's really a, 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 a real intrinsic concept of drawing close to, to that which is holy. And essentially what Paul is saying here is that the sacraments, and specifically <clears throat> the Lord's Supper, which he's focusing in on, are such that we could say, uh, he says here, if you are eating and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, you are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord himself. It's as if you're in the presence of the Lord and you have disrespected him uh, and God retains his holiness and reserves the right, uh, and we have numerous stories of this in scripture, uh, to literally strike people dead or discipline them uh, in other ways. Um, so when we move to the New Testament, we don't have this entire sacrificial system of uh, animal sacrifice uh, and all of the ornate things that you see, but we still have holy things. Uh, and uh, in the New Testament, our church would say there are two things that are clearly treated as holy in the New Testament, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we call those sacraments. And it says, don't do this cavalierly. This is a big deal. You are drawing uh, close to the presence of God. Now, um, in talking about that, I want to just say a few words about how different Protestant churches have viewed that. Uh, there are many things in common uh, among uh, Christian churches, and there are many things uh, that are different. Uh, and I put in your bulletin three different views, uh, and I uh, really can't do them justice uh, in the amount of time that I have here. So I will do the Q&A after the service. So if you want to go deeper on some of these de denominational differences, uh, we can talk about that. Uh, so I'm going to 
as a typical uh, speaker will do, right? I'm going to give you two, and then I'm going to say that the mean, the golden mean, is in between those two, right? Um, so, on the one hand, uh, historically, uh, the church, the Catholic Church, uh, and churches that feel some uh, degree of connection to the Catholic Church, the Lutheran, the Anglican, um, really use the motif of sacrifice uh, and would say things like, we are participating in the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, and um, a lot of the symbolism that you'll see in churches like that uh, will be things like they won't say that we have a table for a meal, they will say we have an altar for a sacrifice, and we'll call it the altar. Uh, they will talk about a priest who is uh, like the Old Testament priest, um, and there's a number of other symbolisms that are done to really give you the motif of sacrifice, uh, that in some ways uh, you are participating in the sacrifice of Christ. And um, uh, you know, in some sense, uh, I would say it's very explicit in the first centuries, uh, you know, sort of fifth and sixth century, and even to this day, a lot of the motivation for that is to see a symmetry between the Old Testament and the New Testament, to say just as the priests in the Old Testament covenant brought weekly sacrifices before God, which pointed forward to Christ, so we have an equivalent thing that we do which points backwards to Christ. Uh, and so, even as they would say, those animal sacrifices did not in and of themselves uh, save you. Uh, they would say they necessarily still were sort of a sacrifice of atonement. They would say, uh, some of these Christians would say, <clears throat> in the same way, uh, our mass is like those animal sacrifices, like we're literally bringing a sacrifice before God, which is a type of participation in the sacrifice of Christ. Um, so, um, I just don't have time to do that view justice, but I would say that that's simply not the way the New Testament talks about the communion supper. Uh, there is a lot of language in the New Testament about the finality of Jesus' death and saying the Old Testament system is put an end to because Christ is the fulfillment of the law and we're not now coming up with a new version of the law that will be just exactly like the old one but with different symbols. That would not really be in the spirit, especially the book of Hebrews goes at great length about this, to say, don't go back to the old ways, all right? The old ways have been fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the complete fulfillment of the sacrificial law, and so our job is not to come up with an equally ornate and tricky system of rules that does exactly the same thing as the old law, because the old law is fulfilled in Christ, and so there's a finality of his death, and I put a couple of those verses in your additional scriptures saying he died once and for all. He is not being re-sacrificed. We are not re-participating in sacrifice. It's a once and for all sacrifice which is done for you uh, once and for all. Uh, and so that is, uh, you know, one of the uh, things that we learn from the New Testament. On the other hand, to go to the other side, would be churches that I would say drain it of any sense of holiness at all, and would simply say it's similar to a testimonial dinner where you might go when somebody's retirement dinner uh, and speeches are given in honor of that person, uh, but you wouldn't say there was holy ground there. Right? You would just say it was a memorial or a testimonial dinner. And so uh, many of the Baptist and non-denominational churches would uh, move in this direction to simply say it, there's nothing spiritually uh, going on here other than the fact that we're obeying Christ to do what they would not call a sacrament, they would call an ordinance, which is to say simply something Christ told us to do. Uh, and it has no 
uh, spiritual um, uh, power, so to speak, uh, in and of itself. And the problem with that view, I would say, is it actually doesn't really mesh with the passages we have in front of us. That, you know, Paul really is <clears throat> lifting this up and saying, the way you treat the bread and the wine is like the way you treat the body and blood of Christ. Like, this is a, a big deal. Uh, and to do it in a cavalier, just sort of memorial-only way, I don't think does justice to the passage we have in front of us where uh, Paul really says, this is a really big deal. You are on holy ground, and if you treat these things lightly, you are profaning uh, the blood of Christ. Uh, and so, uh, again, I don't think that that view, uh, not that it's completely indefensible, I don't think that it lines up with the tone of this passage of how holy and deep and even sort of scary uh, communion uh, is. So, of course, the proper answer is the Reformed answer, which is the golden mean uh, between the other two. Um, and again, there's so much more I could say about this, but uh, in a nutshell, we would say it really is holy ground. We would say that the bread and the wine are not the locus of the Holy Spirit. It's not as though Jesus is localized in that bread. Uh, but we would say this is a holy assembly, and when we come to the communion supper, we are on holy ground, uh, and this is a spiritual event. Uh, and even if you are not partaking, uh, and when Matt uh, does communion, you'll hear him say, you know, if you have not been baptized and, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, don't participate. Even if you are here and not partaking, you are part of that holy assembly and you are on holy ground. Uh, and so we are collectively asking the Holy Spirit to draw near to us in, in a holy thing. And like the holy things that we see in the Bible, there is both increased blessing in which we draw near to God, and Scripture uses the language of feeding on Christ, uh, that it is spiritual food, uh, sometimes called a means of grace. It is a way in which we receive spiritual blessing from God in a real and tangible way. Um, not because we're re-sacrificing Christ, but because we are in His presence. We are drawn close to Him, uh, and because of that, uh, we take it very, very seriously. Um, so, let me just finish then with just a few applications of this <clears throat> for our uh, particular church uh, here. Um, the first is uh, that we would say we don't do communion privately. We don't have private communion. That we have, we would say believers should do communion in the proper way with an ordained pastor who is going to lead us in communion. And the analogy that I have for that is sort of like uh, handling dynamite. <clears throat> um, you know, Matt is trained to handle dynamite, so to speak, uh, and he has a lot of experience with handling dynamite. Um, is it possible that uh, if you didn't have a specialist in handing dynamite, you could handle it and not blow yourself up? Probably. But why would you want to, right? You know, like if you're handling a holy and powerful thing, why not have someone specially trained in handling dynamite to be the one who handles it? Uh, and it's a measure of respect for what we're dealing with to say, we're not going to just hand it out randomly, you know, uh, and I've been in, you know, um, to use a southern phrase, bless their hearts, uh, people in little groups who did their communion, a couple teenagers handing out the bread and so on, and, um, you know, I, I'm sure God understands their heart was in the right place, but it's treating in a cavalier fashion what should be treated like dynamite. Uh, and, uh, and so we would say, normally, we should uh, have uh, ch the church with the ordained pastors 
uh, serving communion. Uh, a second application, you pr- if you've been around for a while, you've heard this, right? It's called fencing the table. Uh, it's actually required in our denomination <clears throat> for the one serving communion to say, uh, if you are not eligible for communion, uh, don't, don't partake. Uh, and um, we always hasten to add, what makes you ineligible is not if you've sinned a whole lot. If you've sinned a whole lot, actually, that means you really ought to come, right? Because you need spiritual food, right? Uh, what can keep you away is if you have not come in the front door, so to speak, if you have not been baptized, if you've not joined yourself to a church, uh, if you are, uh, you know, a Lone Ranger Christian, uh, then go through things in the right order. Uh, be baptized, be part of the church first. Um, or uh, if you are simply uh, completely oblivious to it and not recognizing the seriousness of it and not ready. Uh, and so we often will say to people, prepare yourself for communion uh, and spiritually do an accounting. Now, that doesn't mean you have to add up all your sins and say, if I did too many sins, I can't take communion. Just the opposite. If you really have done a lot of sin, you really need communion. But it does mean that you take the time before you take the elements to prepare yourself and consider what it is that we're doing here. Uh, and am I ready to tread on the holy ground in the presence of a holy God? Uh, now, as a side consequence of that, we typically would say that small children who don't understand communion should not take it until they are ready to be interviewed by the session and, uh, and the elders and, you know, convey that they actually understand that. And, you know, Paul says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, it's not something to be done cavalierly or just because I see everybody else doing it and that makes me want to do it. Uh, it needs to be uh, something that is done by people who have the ability to examine themselves. Uh, and the last thing I just want to say as a practical application is, is don't skip it. Uh, we in the uh, Reformed traditions talk about means of grace, uh, things that don't make you more saved, they don't make you more forgiven, but you can think of them as food, uh, that they're spiritual food. And so things like reading your Bible, praying to God, uh, and the sacraments, being uh, in God's people and taking the sacraments are good for you. Uh, and you don't eat because it's a religious duty. You eat because if you don't eat, you get hungry and you get cranky and bad things happen. Uh, and so we take communion uh, not because we're earning merit points uh, in order to get more in God's grace, but because it's spiritual food uh, in which we feed upon Christ and we come into him. And so um, it could be uh, at some point you're homebound, uh, and then you should feel free to call the church and say, could someone come and visit me uh, and have communion with me? Uh, that is your right as a Christian to ask the church. And again, we don't just send one person. We will send a little uh, group of the church to have a little worship service with you. Uh, but we actually encourage people not to just say, oh, it's too hard, I can't do it, but to really encourage people to take advantage uh, of that and to, to eat that spiritual food. Um, so, uh, Matt's going to come up in just a second to lead us in communion. Uh, I hope I didn't, like, scare you away uh, from communion. Uh, it really is a blessing poured out for us, uh, and yet it's a blessing of walking on holy grounds, so to speak, uh, and being in the presence of a holy God. Uh, and so, let's, not just this week, but every time we have communion, keep that in mind of what it is that we're doing in communion. Let me uh, close in prayer.